Thank you for joining us on the Rose Church Podcast, recorded live every week at the Bossa Nova Ballroom in downtown Portland. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit rosechurch.org or follow us on social media at Rose Church PDX. We have been on a collection of talks called Bring Your Heart Home. For the last four weeks and tonight is our last installment of this series and then we'll have easter and then the week after that we're going to start a brand new series which i am very very excited about which you'll hear more about next week at easter well tonight go with me to the book of mark mark chapter 3 verse 1 it's a story about jesus and it says jesus went to the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand or better translation in the greek would be a withered hand since it was the sabbath jesus his enemies watched him very closely if he healed the man in his hand they planned to accuse him of working on the sabbath jesus said to the man with the deformed hand come and stand in front of everyone then he turned to his critics and said to them does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or destroy it? But they wouldn't even answer him. Verse 5, it says, He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hearts. They said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. Your translation might say it was restored fully as his other hand. At once, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot and kill Jesus. Tonight we're going to conclude our talk about bring your heart home, but our specific theme for tonight, if you want to write it down or take notes and I'm so excited for tonight. I believe I have a word in my spirit for you. So um, please help me preach tonight. And if you're newer to this setting and you hear someone like sing amen or they might stand up here or there, uh, they're not leaving. They're just helping me preach. And so, uh, the, come on, the 5 p.m. is way more awake than the 11 a.m., right? This morning was rough. It's being recorded, so I don't want the 11 a.m. to hear it. I'm just kidding. 11 a.m. was my favorite service because they're going to hear this later. Um, but 5 p.m., come we're alive and we're awake and we are happy to be in church. My title for tonight, if we're going to talk about this theme for a little bit, is church clothes. Church clothes is, is our theme for tonight. Let's pray as we dive into this, uh, these few verses. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you that you are here, that you are active, that you are alive, that you are speaking to us tonight. Father, I pray for these amazing four or five verses, God, in this amazing story that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would reveal yourself to us, God. And as we end our time talking about your word, as we go into worship, you'd reveal yourself once again through singing and praise tonight. Father, we love you. In your name I pray. And everybody said? Amen. Cheers. Um, was anyone uh, in church tonight raised in church? You were raised in church your whole life? All the people that need counseling. I, uh, I was raised in church my whole life. My dad was a pastor for uh, 40 years. Um, all of my life, I'm, I'm 30, and so all of my life, my dad has been a pastor. He recently just um, stepped down from his church, and I travels full-time and writes and does some other things. But I was raised in church my entire life, and I went to so many retreats and advances and 
prayer times, and we used to do this thing in our old church called Action Night, all church teaching in one night. Yeah? Uh, action night, and then we had uh, youth ministry night, and then Saturday night was prayer night, and then Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, like I literally would sleep in the pew at church. I would just stay in the back until the next service was over, because back in the 90s, all services were four hours long. And like, I'll go to sleep while they're worshiping, and I'd wake up, and they're worshiping again. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, is Jesus coming back tonight? Or I don't understand, like, why we're still in this song. Like, how many times can we sing this bridge over and over and over again? Like, you know that song, like, I can sing of your love forever, but they sing of that song for like an hour and a half. And they're like proving we can sing of his love forever. Like, all right, guys, like, let's chill at Delirious. Let's just calm down for a little bit. Um, but I was raised in church. I love church. I love church jokes. And, and, uh, if you were raised in church, like truly raised in church, you understand this one thing about church kids. We had church clothes. What I mean by that is you had church clothes you were only allowed to wear at church. And the minute you got home, you were taking those clothes off because you were no longer at church. And, and my mom, uh, bless her soul, uh, she's not here tonight. She's backsliding, pray for her. Um, I'm just kidding, her and my dad are in Hawaii, but... Um, my mom is a little OCD and by a little, I mean a lot. And, and so my mom had specific clothes for me that were church clothes. And once again, these are the nineties people. I had khakis, a tuck in polo, a bow tie and penny loafers with no penny. So I'm telling you right now, epitome of church clothes. Okay. So early two thousands, late nineties, the apex of church clothes. Okay. So. I remember one day after Sunday, our 18th service was over and I got home and I lived in a, a cul-de-sac with 18 guys and one girl. All of us 18 guys were in the same class. We all went to school together and I got home from church one day and all of the guys were outside playing football. And I come home, I run out on my parents' deck in Happy Valley, that's where I was raised. We, I lived in Happy Valley and our street was Sunny Way, the happiest place on earth. And... And I get outside to the deck, and I'm like, guys, do you need one more? And my, my, there's these neighbors and their twins, Matt and Eric. And they're like, hey, we need one more. Like, hurry up. And I'm like, I'm in my church clothes. That was my response. <laughs> I'm in my church clothes. And they're like, so? So I turned to my mom. I was like, mom, like, they need me right now. I don't have time to change, mom. And so my mom was like, okay, this one time. You can go play with the church clothes. And I swear to you, I thought this was like the heavens opening up with like favor and mercy on my life, okay? Like the fact that my mom said yes to playing in church clothes was like the best day. So I go out there, we're playing football, and my neighbor Brett, who was a couple years older than me, he, he decided to um, help me run faster than I wanted to run <laughs> and ended up pushing me. And I went sliding through this grass. And I stand up and my bow tie is ripped off. This pair or this side of jeans is ripped. This side is all muddy. My shirt's untucked. My belt's all messy. And I'm like 10 years old at this point. I just start crying. Not because I'm hurt. Not because I'm frustrated. It's because my mom is going to kill me when I get home and she sees my khakis and my bow tie ripped. So I come into the house, just head down, just defeated in life. Come to my house and my mom goes, really? in your church clothes. No, are you okay? No, are you hurt? Like nothing, just in your church clothes. Really, Andrew? 
take them off. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry, mom. Like I just did like the worst sin ever known to mankind. Okay. And my mom made me take all my clothes. And for that day, I was like, you're not wearing church clothes outside the for church. And, and so my mom would, would begin to put my clothes. Um, my sister's here and she knows what happens that we would, my mom would put my clothes, in my closet from white to black in color and from short sleeve to long sleeve and all. Yeah. Crazy. Welcome to my life. And all of the hooks would have to go the same way in the closet. So when, when my mom would want to ground me, I'd turn all the hooks opposite ways to frustrate her. And then I'd come back into my room an hour later and they'd all be put back to the normal way. And then I was like, come on, my mom, my mom would always be like, it's not funny. Like, I think it's funny. But this morning or tonight we are reading a story where a man with a withered hand ends up in a synagogue or a church and the reality is, I, just how I had church clothes, back in this day and age, they had church clothes. But it wasn't clothes, it was a life. You had to live a certain way, you had to talk a certain way, in order to be welcomed into a synagogue. After this day, when I ruined my church clothes, I remember a few weeks later, I invited my neighbor to church. And he's like, oh, I, can't, I can't go to church with you. I was like, why? He's like, I don't have church clothes. He's like, I remember your mom getting so so mad at you about your church clothes. I don't, I don't have, I don't have church clothes. And I really began to think about that the other day, because I think as much as I, when I was, I don't know, nine, 10 years old, thinking about this story, um, I think our culture, we still have church clothes. Now they not, might not be physical clothes, even though some, some churches have that where you have to dress a certain way in order to be welcomed. Um, I've been preaching places and people would hand me a jacket because all of my tattoos are showing. They're like, hey, God's not going to hear your message if your tattoos are showing. I'm the one preaching that Sunday. So I understand that there are churches where you have to wear church clothes. But I think way, way more than that, we have now built a system of not church clothes, but church lives. That if you don't live a certain way, if you don't act a certain way, if you don't talk a certain way, you are no longer welcome amongst the church people. Read a story time of a man with a withered hand and he ends up in a church synagogue and Jesus has this moment with him but as well as has a moment with these religious people. And, but when you begin to read this story, begin to read commentators and theologians and historians that, that in order for the man to be welcomed into church, he would have had to hide his withered hand. Because they would have believed that with a man with a withered hand or uh, paralyzed legs or being blind, that you are now a curse or a disease and they would ask you to sit somewhere else in the church service to make sure you don't infect anyone else. So the man with the withered hand would have had to hide his withered hand as he entered into the church and then showed it later to make sure that he was welcomed. So he would have had to hide his withered hand as he went, went to the church. And th th this entire series, if you are new tonight or our first time with us, we've been on a four-week series about home, about bring your heart home. And what we've been talking about is really what type of church are we going to build? What type, of, what type of home are we going to build? And tonight I want to conclude that talk, and I'm going to kind of skim through these first two points real fast and end somewhere tonight to conclude our, our, our last five weeks of talks. But I want to build a certain church. I want to be a part of a certain church. And there's three things tonight that I want to take out from this story and talk about tonight. Number one is this. I want to build a church where Jesus is our focus. I want to build a church where Jesus is our focus. Now, you can be like, oh, that's, that's obvious, or everyone does that, or every church is like that. No, not necessarily, 
because the church that we're reading about tonight, as we read it, the Pharisees come into the synagogue or into the church, into the church service. Every Sunday morning, they'd have synagogue and then church service. As the Pharisees came in, the Bible says they fixed their eyes on Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. They weren't fixing their eyes on Jesus to get healing. They weren't fixing their eyes on Jesus to uh, have a word or meet with Jesus or be in his presence or be changed or, or get prayer. They were fixing their eyes on Jesus because they were concerned about another man in the building. So they come to the church and they see the man with the withered hand. Not supposed to be here. Why is he here? We're on the Sabbath. They're not supposed to do these things on the Sabbath. And then we have Jesus. And so the Pharisees, the Bible says, they came in and they watched Jesus closely. You know what's interesting about the Gospels, all four of them, is Jesus' enemies are not sinners, but religious people. You never find a story where he's arguing with a sinner. He's arguing with a prostitute. He's arguing with a tax collector. They, that we read a few weeks ago, they flocked to Jesus. They loved Jesus. But the people he had the biggest arguments with, the people that were against him, his critics, his haters, his naysayers, were not the outside people. They were the inside people. Because they looked at him and go, you don't lead like us. You don't talk like us. You don't build church how we build church. And now his haters were not the outside people. Oh, they're the inside people. Be weary of religious people. Be weary of religious Christians. And what do I mean by that? Is this one of the biggest tells, the biggest tells a religious person is they're more concerned about your flaws than theirs. One of the biggest ways you can find a religious person so quick is they're always concerned about what God is doing in you, not what God is doing in them. And I don't mean in the good way, like, hey, what's God doing to you? I, I don't mean that. I mean, like, why, why, why is she here? What? This is church. Like, I know what she does Monday through Saturday. I know what shows she was at last night. I know what's on her page. I have friends that talk to her. I know where she's doing Friday night, Saturday night. I know who she's dating. I know who he's sleeping with. I know where he spends his money. And what you start doing is church doesn't become about God. Church doesn't become about Jesus. Church doesn't come about you growing. Church becomes, I'm better than them. I'm more better than her. I'm smarter than her. And church now becomes not your focus on Jesus. Your attention now switches to everyone else. I want to build a church that our focus is not on others. Our focus is on Jesus. Have you ever noticed that we enjoy being mediocre? Because there's always people above us we can hate. And there's always people below us we can feel better than. So in church, we find these people are like, man, I'm, I'm doing better than her. I'm not screwing up like her. My marriage is better than theirs. My finances are better than theirs. My career is longer than theirs. My job is higher than theirs. But hey, I don't like him because he didn't deserve that. That was nepotism. That was fate. I don't, I don't like him. And you find people that are above you and below you so you never have to grow or shrink. You just want to stay the same. And you find people just to judge and to care about. God wants us to build a church that our focus is on him. Our attention is on him. Our perspective is on him. Not on anyone else. Not on the people around you. Not on the people beside you. Why? Because when you stand before God's throne, you know who it's going to be? You and him. That's it. It's not collective. It's not the church as a whole. It's not even you and your spouse. When you get to heaven and stand before that white throne, it is you and him. And it was not going to be, well, I was better than her. 
that she's not your mirror. Do we have to understand tonight that you becoming a Christian, your goal is to be Jesus, not Sarah or Mike or Mark. And so why are we paying attention to people that are not even your mirror? They are not your goal. They are not your desire. When you focus on Jesus, because the Bible says we are supposed to become like Jesus. So that's why we focus on. Have you ever noticed? Um, I, I've done this before where you're walking down the street and you're like talking to people and you start like wandering and running into something. It's, it's the worst thing in the whole world. You get embarrassed. I, I, I've done it before. Um, why? Hear me. Because your feet will follow your eyes. Whatever you focus on, you start wandering, your eyes start wandering, your feet naturally start following where your eyes lead. Well, by the way, spiritually, your life will follow where your eyes go. So if you want to follow Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. You need to become like Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. If you are busy looking around, your life is going to wander. Your feet are going to wander. Why? Because wherever your eyes go, your feet will follow. I want to build a church that Jesus is our focus. Religious people, they didn't, they didn't want Jesus to heal this guy because of the Sabbath. I didn't talk about this this morning, but I feel that I should tonight because the Sabbath was made for a good thing. It was a day of rest. It was a day of divine time with God. You know, another sign of religious people is they take things meant for good and make them harmful. Sabbath is a great day. It's an important day. But Jesus wants to do good for someone's life. And the Pharisees go, What's he going to do? And that's why Jesus gets so mad. He goes, is this a day for good or a day for evil? And they couldn't even answer him. Is this a day to save a life or a day to kill a life? And they couldn't even answer him. Why? Because religious people make the minor things major and the major things minor. In the story before, uh, they're following Jesus and his disciples, and they pick a grain off the field and they eat it. Do you remember this story if you've been raised in church? They pick a grain out of the field and they go, hey, see, your, your disciples are harvesting on the Sabbath. This is sinful. They weren't harvesting. They had a snack. Religious people exaggerate what you do and undermine what they do. Oh, they're harvesting. They're harvesting. They had a snack walking through the field. Religious people exaggerate what you do and make less of what they do. They judge your motive. And they want to act off their life. They, they have this, this different thing that they want to judge you off. Yeah. And so Jesus comes in the synagogue with this guy. He goes, you're really going to play the Sabbath day? I'm trying to help someone. Yeah. And you're going to watch on who I'm going to heal. If I'm going to work on this day. I want to build a church that Jesus is our focus. Yeah. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Up on the screen. In Jesus' name. Please. I beg you. Thank you. Nope. Nope, Hebrews, Hebrews. There we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded, by the way, you are surrounded tonight by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin. Notice how there are different categories. There's weight and there are sin. God might ask you to strip things off, not because they're sinful, it's because they're weightful. Different message for a different time. That's free. Especially the sin that so easily, easily trips us up. Let us run the race, the race with endurance that God has set before us. 
Not your boss, not your mom, not your like God has set before you. And then this is the great verse right here. How do we run this race? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. How do we finish this race? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. One of the ways to protect yourself from becoming religious is understanding he is the initiator and the perfecter of our faith. One of the best ways that you can keep your eyes on Jesus, this is so simple, is every day remind yourself where he found you. One of the best ways to keep yourself in line, to keep yourself humbled, to keep your attention on Jesus, is every day remind yourself, I remember whether it was a week ago, a year ago, or a decade ago, I remember that moment. I remember where he found me. Because this is what starts happening. When you start running your race, you start wondering, why I'm so much better than her. But I know, man, I know where God found me, and I'm thankful. And as much as you want to lead, if you remind yourself where he found you, you have a way easier time keeping your eyes on Jesus, keeping your attention on Jesus. Because you remind yourself, I wasn't always this way. I wasn't always who I am now. As Christians, can I just throw this out there? This is all all free tonight. Can we stop making other Christians pay for things you got for free? That the grace, remember, the grace that you received was free. The love that you received was free. The mercy you received was free. The hope that you received was free. The arms that you received were free. Everything that you have in Jesus was free. So we can't turn around and go, well, once they act better, I'll love them. While you were still dead, he loves you. Well, once they start being more encouraging, do you remember where he found you? Do you remember the state you were in, the emotional place you were in, the miry clay you were in? If you will constantly remind yourself, I remember when he found me. Way easier time fixing your focus on Jesus. But number two, number two, I got to keep going. I'm turning into my dad already. Number two, not only do I want to build a church where Jesus is focused, but I want to build a church where the withered are welcomed. I want to build, I want to build a church where the withered, the withered are welcomed. Unfortunately, we think of addicts. We think of homeless people. We think of those that are physically or visibly in need, which we were 100% for that church. We always will be. We have since the very beginning in September 17th at our first interest night. We have always been that church. But my question to you tonight, real simple question, just throw it out there, pick it up if you want, is who's more withered in this story? Who is more withered? Is it the withered hand or the withered heart? We can easily read this story and go, oh man, I'm so thankful that God loves the withered hand people, which is true, absolutely, fundamentally, theologically, yes, But my question is, who was more withered in Mark 3? Who was more deformed in Mark 3? The man with the withered hand or the religious people with the withered heart? 
See, this story is a dichotomy between the human soul. There are some people that are withered publicly, and there's other people that are withered privately. And Jesus came for both. And when you understand that my withered is different than your withered, I have grace for your withered because we are all collectively withered. Who's more withered? I think it's an argument worth being had because both. Both. I can say that, oh, we're being charged for the withered. Oh, the down and out. No, no, the gospel isn't for the down and out. The gospel is for humanity. Uh, there, there's two stories. There's two stories. I love them. In, in John chapter 3, uh, uh, a religious man named Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night, which we used to call Nick at night back in the day. Church jokes, people. Nicodemus would come to Jesus, and then he's a religious. He's a religious leader. And he goes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to do these things. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. In other words, he's saying, everything you have done in your religious study has not made you right with me. Wow. Do you know how offensive that would have been to a religious person that spent his entire life memorizing the Torah, memorizing Greek and Hebrew, memorizing the laws, trying to live right, trying to act right? He goes, everything you have done, and you are still not right with me. You have to be born again. John 3. John 4, a desperate housewife, meets Jesus. She's had five husbands. Currently living with her boyfriend. And Jesus at the end goes, oh yeah, by the way, I am everything you've been looking for. I am the, the Messiah coming. I, I am the Son of God. I am the Savior. And she's this moment where she encounters Jesus, leaves her water pot. What's interesting, these two stories, Jesus is saying this for a reason. I don't care if you are religious or you're a desperate housewife. I don't care if you've memorized everything you're supposed to memorize. I don't care if you are lost as all get out. It does not matter where you are in the spectrum. You still need me. You still need me. I don't care what you've been doing, if you're religious or you're physically lost. It doesn't matter. Everyone needs me. Why? Because we're all, we're all, we're all withered. I want to build a church where the withered are welcomed. Um. Because you know this, you know this, you're smart, you're intelligent people. The physical withered are hard to hide. The internal withering is easy to hide. So you can judge somebody with an alcoholic addiction. You're like, I just can't believe, man, I'm just so frustrated. And as much as you are frustrated about their alcoholic addiction, God is frustrated with your bitterness. As much as you're frustrated that she keeps sleeping around, God is frustrated that you have anger and resentment and pride. Understand that the same way you see physical things, God sees your eternal things. And it's the same thing to him. And you know how it's really easy to keep your eyes on Jesus? When you understand you're withered, I'm withered, we are all collectively withered. That's why I don't have to pay attention to you and put my focus on you. Because Jesus is my attention. Jesus is my focus. Because everything I'm dealing with might not be what you're dealing with. But I talked about this a few weeks ago. We only have grace for the pain we understand. We only have grace for the withering we understand. Everyone has issues. They're different, different sizes, different degrees, different levels, but the reality is we are all broken and marred and cracked and lost and needing. Jesus 
wants to remind these Pharisees, you guys think I was here to heal the man with the withered hand? And I was here to heal you. But their focus was on Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Man, I wonder what he's going to do with the man. I wonder what he's going to do with the man with the withered hand. Well, what about your withered hearts? The, the Greek here where, where it says that Jesus looked around angrily is deep, I mean deep, furious anger. This is the most angry Jesus ever gets in all of the Gospels. He is furious. Notice how he's not furious at the man with the withered hand. He's not furious at the man being in pain. He's withered at the religious hearts that have zero grace for a man with pain. You know religious people, they are committed to the system more than they are the people. Because it, if it was a Monday, they would, hey, Jesus, heal him. But it was the Sabbath. And they were more committed to the law than the people. And that's why Jesus came to fulfill the law. So you don't have to be obsessed with the law anymore. You can be obsessed with Jesus. Because he fulfilled the law and he became the law. And now we can love people. And now we can assume that the system or a program or the law. Because Jesus became the law. My third thing that I want to talk about, and this is where I really, really want to land tonight. I said all of that is an introduction to get here. I'm already my dad. It's unbelievable. Um, I, want, I want to build a church where the withered are welcomed. Absolutely. But I want to build a church where the withered become whole. We will always be a church where our doors are open to gay, straight, alcohol, Abuse, addiction, marriage, divorce, race, color, creed, money. Our doors will be open. If you are breathing, our doors are open. Absolutely. 100%. We will always, always be that church. Because I think Jesus is that church. But, but, but. As much as we are building a church where they are welcomed. Where people are welcomed. I also want to build a church where they become whole. Um. You might be smarter than me, which I'm sure you are, um, when it comes to the Bible. But I can't find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one time, one time, where a deformed person encountered Jesus and left deformed. I can't find one. Blind Barmaeus got his sight. Met the withered hand. His hand became whole. Lazarus was dead. But he didn't stay dead. The paralyzed man in Mark 2, his friends cut a hole through the roof, vandalized the church, (laughs) dropped him in front of Jesus. He's in front of Jesus, paralyzed, but he gains his strength. His legs become whole. Every story after story after story. Oh, the welcomed, the the withered were welcomed, but they also became whole. And I'm believing that we're going to build a church where, yes, the withered are welcomed, they are celebrated, they are loved, and they are welcomed. But even more than that, they're whole, and they become new, and they become afresh. That's where the Bible says that in him we become a new creation, not a better creation, a new one, a whole one. That he who knew no sin became sin, that we now can become the righteousness of God. Here's, I want to talk about four things tonight. We'll, we'll, we'll go quick so we can, we can worship. Four things about what it means to become whole. 
Number one is this, is that how you want to become whole or you changing is going to be a lot different than you think. Could you imagine the, the man that morning thinking, uh, all right, I'm going to go to the synagogue and I'm going to find Jesus. And you know what? I'm just really believing that as he's walking by, his robe is going to touch my hand and it's going to become whole. Really believing as he's just talking from the Torah that my hand is just going to become healed. And he had no idea. I wonder, I wonder, hear me, I wonder if he would have known beforehand that he would have had to stand in front of everyone, would he have still done it? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever noticed about Jesus? Um, he tricks you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Where if he would have really told you what that job was really going to be like, yeah. or that relationship was really going to be like, or that dream was really going to be like, you would have never done it. Yeah. So the man, he, he comes and he comes to the synagogue and he has his hand and Jesus says, hey, uh, come stand in the middle. The Bible says, he, we'll get there later, but he stretches his hand out and Jesus speaks a word and he's healed immediately. I am a firm believer. I just said other churches might not believe this or, or go this far, but I believe, God bless, that I believe in the immediate power of God. That you could be an addict or you could be in pain or you could be in fear or you could be enslaved to something for years. But in one moment with God, everything can change. I believe in the immediate power of God. But you know what I found is sometimes it's not immediate. I wonder how often we are praying for deliverance, but God gives you discipline. God, we screwed up real bad with our finances. Give me deliverance in our finances and wash away our debt. And God says, no, I'm not going to give you deliverance. I'm going to give you discipline to get out of debt. Okay, God, we have a bad marriage. We're going to go to the altar. We're going to hold hands. We're going to pray. You're going to fix everything. God says, no, we're going to go to counseling. And we're going to ask some other marriages that are doing good to help and pastor and counsel. And we're we're going to, yes, I'm going to deliver you, but your deliverance is going to come through discipline. Sometimes God moves in moments, in step after step after step, and he'll give you the desire to be disciplined. Often the moment that we want to be healed, we want to be whole, we want God to do something, it is not how we think it's going to be. The second thing about us becoming whole and us changing is is that What you will not expose, God cannot heal. The the Bible says that he he comes in in the middle, and this is crazy. This is crazy. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. What if the man was like, what hand? I don't got a withered hand. I'm good. What hand? What marriage? We have a great marriage. What addiction? I'm good. What are you talking about, God? I'm good. And as much as you won't expose, he won't heal. It had to take the man to go, yeah, here's my hand. You know, he had to to admit his hand was deformed. He had to admit he needed someone or something to heal his hand. So Jesus says, uh, uh, stay in the middle and stretch out your hand. What you are unwilling to expose he can't heal. 
there's this really, really interesting thing in the Gospels, all of them. Jesus would come to a blind guy, a blind guy, and go, hey, what do you want me to do for you? It's pretty obvious, Jesus. Blind. Comes to a, a lame man, crippled from birth. Hey, what do you want me to do for you, buddy? I want my legs to work. Obviously. I asked this question a while ago about the Holy Spirit. I go, why does Jesus ask stupid questions? They're stupid. Of course a blind man wants to see. That's what the Holy Spirit said right back to me. Because he wants you to admit what you need from him. So I found that prayer is more for your behalf than God's behalf. It's just taking you a moment to go, I'm not doing well, I'm crippled, I'm deformed, I'm withered, I need you. It just has a moment of you verbalizing your need, of you verbalizing your reality, of you verbalizing your need of him. I feel like God is asking the question tonight, what do you need? What do you need from me? Because you're going to have to expose before he heals. Hear me tonight. God will never expose you to shame you. He will only expose you to heal you. If you ever feel condemned, that is the devil. God will never condemn you. The Holy Spirit will convict you to change. The devil will will condemn you to shame. If you ever feel condemned by God, it is not him. It is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction that leads you to change and leads you to growth and leads you to becoming better. God will never condemn you or shame you. Remember Genesis when man fell and they they sewed fig leaves together? How chafing is that, by the way? Fig leaves. Let's sew them together and wear them as underwear. No, thank you. But notice, notice, they wanted to cover their sin with fig leaves. But later in the story, we read that God covers them as well. But he does the covering so much better. What does he do? He kills a lamb. And he takes the skin and wraps it around him. And I'm pretty sure a lamb skin is a way better covering than fig leaves. Well, by the way, Genesis was a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus. That a lamb would come on a cross and die. And that a lamb skin would cover us and protect us and guide us. Not for shame reasons. Not for embarrassing reasons but to cover you because in him we are righteous in him we are forgiven in him we are whole why because a lamb hung on a tree and died for you and me did you know i'm not a scientist but i've asked scientists this question and and health people did you know that the number one most venomous snake in the world the number one antidote is lamb's blood facts I'm not just making it up like a cool spiritual moment. Go Google it. It's not there. No, Google it. A venom from a snake. The best antidote is lamb's blood. Because what the lamb's blood has in it is the very thing that goes against what's in the snake's venom. Whatever venom is in your life, the lamb's blood has an answer. And he wants to cover. He wants to die. He wants to protect. He wants to heal you. But what you will not expose, he can't heal. I think God's question is, what do you need? What do you need? 
want to build a church where what we expose, he heals. But number three, hear me, the way he heals you, it's on purpose. It's with a purpose. I wrote a couple of Jewish stories this week about this passage, and I don't know how true this is, but let's just say it is that they believe that this man is a bricklayer. The historians would write about this man way back in the first century that he was a bricklayer. And how can a bricklayer do his job with one hand? So you know what this, this deformity has done? Has taken his life. God brings you healing to give you your life back. He brings healing to give you what was taken. What deformity has stolen things from you? That God's healing restores unto you. Because the minute this man was healed, his life is back. His job is back. His friendships are back. He's not ostracized from community anymore. He's not kicked out anymore, marginalized anymore. He is now brought back to wholeness and healed. I feel tonight that there are marriages on the brink of divorce. That God's going to come and restore and heal not just to make your marriage whole, but to turn around and find another marriage on the brink of divorce and bring them healing. So there's addicts here that God's going to heal and protect and give you deliverance. And you're going to turn around and find somebody else with addiction. Go, I know what it means. I know what it feels like. And for the people that are, are, are stricken with anxiety and fear, and God's going to give you confidence and a strength and a peace. God does work in you, not just for you but to do something through you as you turn around and you are giving what you've been given. You are giving what you've been given. It is never just for you. Your healing is never just for you. It's that you thou find healing in other people. The last thing I, I want you to understand tonight is as God does work in your life, as God brings change and wholeness and healing, I said it last, I could have said it first, but I want to say it last on purpose, is you have to understand, he's able. He is, he's able. Guys, let's just put ourselves in this man's shoe. Why stretch out your hand for the embarrassment unless you're sure, hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, I've heard things. I've seen things. I've been told things. So I know as I stretch, he's able to heal me. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able. Now to him who is able. Now to him who is able. Now to him. I don't have a stuttering problem. I want you to hear it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ask or even think according to the power that works in us. All glory to him. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above. He is able. He is able. He is able. I want you to hear this tonight. He is able. No circumstance is too big. No fear is too big. No lie is too big. 
No divorce is too big. No money situation is too big. He is able. The reason why we stretch our hand out is because he's able. The reason why we expose ourselves for healing is because he's able. Your spouse might not be able. Your psychiatrist might not be able. Your counselor might not be able. Your boss might not be able. Your money might not be able. Oh, but he's able. He's able. I felt even praying Gideon. He's hiding in a wine cellar. God comes to him and his first word to Gideon is like, hey, mighty man, mighty man of valor. A man that was hiding, God calls mighty. Uh, that doesn't make sense, God. He's hiding, he's a coward. And yet you call him mighty. Why? Because God calls us things we are not yet of. David, hey king, I'm a shepherd. I'm a sheep. With poop all day. I smell. But God says, King. Esther, who's in a hopeless situation, calls her a queen and elevates her to the second command of the whole kingdom in that, in that day and age. And she now begins to lead the move of God through a hopeless situation. Through a woman, by the way. Which that's why we have women preach. Saul, who was killing Christians, killing Christians, killing them. God knocks him off his horse and go, you now work for me. And a man who was killing Christians now writes two thirds of the New Testament. Moses is a murderer. He's rebellious. He's a thief and a liar. And God chooses him to the nation of Israel into freedom and out of captivity. You go through the books of the Bible, all 66 books, 40 authors, over 1,500 years. You go through it all and name after name and life after life. God finds people, changes them, saves them, and sets them on a course. He finds the souls and turns them into a pole and he sets them on their way. He finds fishermen, the outcasts of society, and changes the known world. He finds a cussing fisherman who denied him three times and lets him preach the first sermon of the new church. He finds murderers and turns them into pastors over and over and over. He finds people and he welcomes the withered, but he also makes them whole. He finds them where they're at but he turns them to where they need to go. I don't know who I'm preaching to tonight, but if you are withered, he is able to make you whole. If you are discouraged tonight, he's able to make you whole. And as we go into worship tonight, and as we sing, we are singing to the able God. We are singing to the capable God. We are singing to a powerful God. I don't know what you need to stretch out tonight. I don't know what you need to admit tonight. But what would happen if you say, God, here I am. God, change me. God, loves me. God, this is who I am. This is who I am. But I know you are able and you are willing to do exceedingly, abundantly, above. Come on, church, let's sing. Thank you for listening to the Rose Church Podcast here on the Apollo Podcast Network. 
For more information and resources, please visit rosechurch.org or follow us on social media at rosechurchpdx.